0: Now, um, this morning we're going to read from God's word. This week we're in Genesis chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And so he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two, down the middle, and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants... I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kamanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, our passage opens with the man Abram, and he is bothered. He is bothered about two things. He's bothered about a son. There's this question that he, he, he brings up. And, and the context is, you'll recall in the previous chapter, chapter 14, Abram has just risked his life in battle. There was fighting. And, and, and maybe part of the thinking in his experience is, I could have died. I could have died in that fighting. In, in those battles with the nine kings, I could have died. And if I had died, who would continue my name? Abram's is aged. He's in his 70s, maybe in his 80s, and he could have died in battle, and and he has no son. And so then, especially then, a son represented an heir to all of his life and all that he'd built, and and a son represented elder care. Who will look out for me when I'm unable to look out for myself and my, my wife? So there's a question for Abram when he's concerned and bothered about a son. There's a question of continuity, it's also more deeply it's a question about meaning will anything will anything that i've done with my whole life will any of it remain will any of it be remembered so he's bothered about a son he's also bothered about security this this question he brings about an inheritance the land he's wondering am i going to end up my days will my life end just wandering no place no permanence and, and, and his experience just with this battle in the, in the last chapter, what he sees is land, this land, it is completely insecure. Look at just what happened. There are all these regional rulers, all these kings, and their thrones are not stable. I don't have a possession here. These kings have possession, and even what they have, it's not stable. They, they, they come in and they lose their thrones. I come back in and some of them retain their thrones. It's also insecure. So for Abram, it's not just that he's concerned, but he's afraid. He's worried. And so what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to continue to look at God's commitment to Abram. It's called also the Abrahamic Covenant. And what we'll find is as we continue to go through God's commitment to Abram, we'll see that this is something, the Abrahamic Covenant, is something that is central to the Christian faith. It's something that addresses our own fears and our own insecurities. And we'll also see that the Abrahamic Covenant offers the greatest gift from God, the greatest gift. And so this morning in our chapter, Genesis 15, what we see are, we see two of God's one-sided promises. God's one-sided promises. And here he promises, I am your shield. I am your great reward. And it's a one-sided promise. and In many ways, it's the ultimate commitment from God to dispel our fears and to address all of our needs. And so let's start, let's start by looking at God's one-sided promises. The passage is structured around God making one-sided promises, and he does it two times here. First of all, he makes a one-sided promise about a son for Abram. That's what you see in verses 1 through 6. A one-sided promise about a son. And then the second one-sided promise that God makes is this promise of an inheritance, the promise of land. And that's in verses 7 through 21. But it's one-sided. What we mean by that is, God initiated this promise, and God is the one, and God alone is the one who will fulfill these promises. Now, think about the magnitude of what God is promising here about a son and about this land. The the scope, the size of it. He promises a son, and, and look at the magnitude of what's promised in it. In verse 2, Abram says, I'm childless. What will you give me, seeing that I'm childless and my heir is not really my son? Verse four, the Lord says, this one, this Eliezer of Damascus is not going to be your heir, but one will come from your body. And then the magnitude of what's encompassed with God's one-sided promise, verse five, he tells Abram, look at the heavens. Look at the, the night sky and count the stars if you're even able to. If you're even able to count the stars, you have countless suns that will come from your body. And so we're told that with just the the unaided human eye, without telescopes, without equipment, we are able, if you were to look on a clear night at the sky, you are able to perhaps perceive with the resolution that our eyes have, maybe 5,000 stars, maybe 10,000 stars. And what God is saying to Abram is, that's how many. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sons will come from you. What he's saying to Abram is, you've got no son. You are geriatric and you've never had a son. But there's coming a day when if they were to have a family reunion of all of your children, you would be surrounded by 5,000, 10,000 sons and grandsons and great-grandsons. So the magnitude of his one-sided promise about a son, it's huge. The magnitude of his one-sided promise about the land. Verse 7 He says, I've I've brought you to this land, Canaan, and you're going to inherit this land, this land that seems completely insecure right now. And as you go on to the end of this section, verses 18 through 21, he he, he delineates boundaries that go from Egypt all the way to the north to the Euphrates River. And and what he's promising is the magnitude of this inheritance, it's vast. It's, It's almost the entire eastern Mediterranean sea coast." He's saying that's, that's the magnitude of the land that I am making a commitment to give you. That's the magnitude of God's one-sided promise. Now the significance of his one-sided promise to Abram. There's this, there's this concept of grace and that's, what, that's part of what makes this one-sidedness of God's promise so significant. It's grace that you see here and that's a key feature of Christianity. Grace is God giving undeserved good. And, and, and here, the magnitude of the good is vast. God gives us undeserved good. God takes the work on himself entirely. It's all on him, and he does it. On Abram's on Abraham's side, what do you see? What is Abram bringing to this, this deal, if you could even call it a deal? What's he bringing? If you go through this, there's nothing There's nothing required of Abram. There's nothing that Abram can draw and say, well, look at what I've done. Look at what I've brought. Look at what I've promised and accomplished. Look at what I deserve. There's nothing on Abram's side. It's all one-sided. What does God even demand that Abram do? In this chapter, nothing. It's grace. Now, if I could give you just an illustration that that might show the one-sidedness of this vast promise, I was thinking of something like this. If If you have familiarity with Christian history, the history of the church over thousands of years, maybe you know something about the work of God in China, but I'm not talking about today, I'm talking about in the 7th and the 8th century. Did you know that in the 7th and 8th century, Christianity had spread and was very present in China in the 600s AD, in the 700s AD, but then it disappeared? And you might be thinking, I had no idea. That's because it actually did disappear. There are just a little there are very few traces, but there are traces that show us it was it was spread across China, but then it disappeared. But if you rewind and play a kind of a game of make-believe and pretend what if you were a missionary back then? What if you were a missionary in China in 800 AD and you saw the work of God, Christianity. Taking hold in China in, in 800 AD. And what if you were this missionary, you had poured out your life to spread the gospel in China, and you, you had seen some success, and God came to you and told you everything that you see here, everything that you've built with your little mission work here, it's going to disappear. It's going to be gone. But in 1200 years, in the year 2024, in this same land, in China, there will be 80 million, 100 million Christians and growing. The magnitude of that promise, it would be like the promise God made to Abram of descendants as the stars are numbered, if you could even count them, but it's, it's all one-sided. But by, by God coming to you and saying, everything that you've built is going to be gone, you realize in that promise what God will do with that magnitude of people in that place it will be God's work entirely. I will bring nothing to that. And so, what is the response that we're to have when God makes this one-sided promise? What's the response that Abram has when God makes this vast one-sided promise to him, this covenant? The response is this: open hands, palm up. All you can do is receive it. And so, so that's part of the response when God makes you a gracious one-sided. Covenantal promise, you just receive it. Verse six says that's what Abram did. Verse six, and Abram believed in the Lord and the Lord accounted it to Abram for righteousness. All that he did was receive it. He just believed it. What does it mean to believe God's promise? Believe means that you expect God to do what he said. It means you have an expectation that God will actually do what he said. You expect God will do it. Because if you don't, if you don't believe in this way, if you don't expect that God will do what He has said, what, what, what happens? That, that's, that's why we have despair. We think it's hopeless. That's why we worry, because we, we don't expect that He will do what He's promised. That's why we become bitter and, and, and cynicism takes root it's because we're not believing we're not expecting that he'll do what he has said that's that's unbelief and so the response to God's promise is we receive it we believe we expect he will do we also we hold out empty hands to God we hold out empty hands we recognize that this is of grace I have nothing to offer I have nothing that I can add to this I have nothing with which I can barter with God so that he would do the good that he's promised. I have no grounds to demand or to expect that God will do this, except that he said he would do it. And so we receive it, we come with empty hands, and that means we also just wait. We wait. There is a lot of waiting baked into this passage here. Abram is going to have to wait for God to do what he's promised, what he's offered. And, and this this is one way that I think it's important for us to apply what we have here. There's a posture in the Christian life, and it's a posture not of striving, not of resisting, not of, uh, of, um, of, um, of putting to death. There's a posture here of waiting, just plain old waiting, waiting on the Lord. When you understand the one-sided nature of God's promise, many times that means you're going to have to wait on the Lord. You're going to have to wait on the Lord to do what the Lord and only the Lord can do. And it's, it's, waiting on the Lord means you're saying this implicitly. You're saying, I can't do more. There's nothing I can do. All I can do is wait. And so that means you will, need to, you will need to wait through times of discouragement. When God delays, you're going to have to wait when you get discouraged. It's in places like Psalm 27, verse 13. I would have lost heart unless I had believed, there's the faith, unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And so when God delays, you still wait on him. It means, if you understand this, that you also will wait on God when you see people doing bad things and getting away with it. Because what will happen is you'll see people doing bad things. You may burn inside. You may want to burn them down. You may want to attack. You may want to retaliate. But you don't. Psalm Psalm 37, verse verse 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass, cease from anger and forsake wrath do not fret it only causes harm for evil doers shall be cut off but those who wait on the lord they shall inherit the earth and so waiting on the lord means you wait on god when you see people getting away with bad things instead of returning evil for evil you keep doing good You don't do evil, you don't return evil, you do good. You return love for hatred. Psalm 37, 34, wait on the Lord and keep his way. When they do unrighteousness, you do righteousness. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And that was a man who brought a message of trying to to fight for goodness and righteousness and justice and to return love for hatred. And they killed him. But he had a very clear sense that in his labors he could wait for the Lord because the day would come when the Lord would do justly. And his hope was in that. It enabled him to wait and not be agitated, not retaliate. We wait, if you understand this, we wait when we're worn down. Isaiah 40, you're waiting. The waiting has gone on for a long time. Isaiah 40, 30, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Waiting on the Lord to do his one side, if you're actually doing, waiting on the Lord, it can renew you. It it can energize you. It can restore you. You've humbled yourself under his mighty hand and in due time, he will raise you up. The biggest part of God's one-sided promise in all of this, though, I think is in the very first verse, verse 1. What what do we see here in in verse 1? He comes to Abram. Abram is is nervous. He's insecure. He's afraid. And God says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. The biggest part of God's one-sided promise it's not just the sun, it's not just the land and the inheritance. It's that God gives us himself. God gives us himself. He says, I am your shield. I am your exceeding great reward. I will be the one who gives you what you are longing for. God says, I am yours. I am your shield. The question you have today, if, especially if you're afraid, especially if you're sensing how insecure all of life is, is God enough? Is God enough for you? Is having God and having God's commitment, is that, is that enough for today? With your health problems, with your relationship problems, with your immigration worries, is having God. When you, when you still lack the child that you've been asking for, when you still don't have the spouse that you want, is having God and having God's commitment enough for you because in this this, God is offering you a relationship and so is a relationship with him with God enough today well God has made these one-sided promises but we struggle we struggle to believe God's one-sided promises why is that why does it seem so hard to believe his one-sided promises well we struggle, to believe. we struggle to believe because sometimes we hear God's promises, but we see very little performance on them. We struggle to believe because we hear God's great promises, but we don't see him performing on his promises. Verse 2, look at what Abram says. He says, God, I'm childless. I'm 70, I'm 80, and we still don't have a child. Verse 3, he says to the Lord, he says, look, God, look, God, you have given me no offspring. You have not given us a child. You promised, but where is your performance? And, and that's got to be one of the great discouragements. Uh, y- maybe you, you've known couples, maybe you are a couple, where for years in their marriage, they have struggled to have a child. They've desired a child. They've prayed about it. They've gone through every step they can think of. And it's just incredibly discouraging and hopeless. Still, no child. Maybe, though, for you, you do ministry. And it feels like there's nothing coming from this. You do neighborhood visitation. You're thinking, this is a waste of time. Nothing good has come from this. We see very little fruit. We see no fruit. And, and what, you, what you come to is you realize God's guarantee, he's made a guarantee it just does not seem good enough. And, and so in verse 8, about this inheritance, about the land, Abram says, Lord God, how will I know? How will I know that you will perform? Is God's guarantee good enough? The guarantee when he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, is that good enough? Because if it is, if having him is good enough, you wouldn't always need people to be there for and you wouldn't be so resentful when people fail you and, and if the Lord is enough it, it, that he is your portion that he is your great reward that the Lord will be the one as it says in Psalm 16 who is your portion, your cup the one who maintains your lot well then if he was really enough you would have peace when your checking account dwindles down too low and, and, and you would have peace when your retirement does not seem stable or when your scores or your numbers go down and, and if having his promise is enough and having him is enough, then even if you have unwanted singleness, God would be enough. It would make the loneliness very different, tangentially, tangential, tangibly, subjectively different. It wouldn't be so bad and so desolate. The danger is, though, when we have promise of God and we see no performance from God, the danger is this. We start taking matters into our own hands. We start thinking, he hasn't performed. He's never going to perform. I've got to do something about it. I've got to do something. And so verse two, you see Abram kind of casting about taking matters into his own hands. Verse two, he says, I've got no son, so I guess it's going to be choice B, choice C, it's going to be Eliezer of Damascus, is that my heir? I, I, I just, I'll, I'll start aligning everything to have him as the heir. And, and, and this is hinting at Abram's future impatience and unbelief and what he does with Hagar. And, and when we take matters into our own hands, what we find is this, we're striving according, not faith, not according to faith, we're striving according to the flesh we're, we're, we're doing what seems right in our own eyes. We're starting to become willing to, to take steps that are legally questionable. We're starting to, to entertain thoughts that are morally questionable. Instead of walking in the paths of righteousness, instead of seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, we start going to that mode of every man doing what is right in his own eyes. It's like King Saul who said i got tired of waiting for you god i got tired of waiting i was pretty sure the waiting meant you weren't gonna, you weren't going to work and so i took matters into my own hands when god delays will you deviate from his directions when god is delaying are you going to deviate from following his directions will you become impatient and start to embrace iniquity i can't keep waiting and so I'm going to sleep with someone else outside of the marriage bed. I can't keep waiting. And so I'm going to fill out this form for financial help or for, for the work I need, and I'm, I'm going to exaggerate numbers on the form. I can't keep waiting for the reconciliation and for the healing in this counseling process. And so I'm going to force my time. I'm going to force my agenda. When God delays, will you deviate from his directions? We also struggle to believe when we find that not only is God delaying, but the barriers get bigger and there are more complications added. We struggle to believe then. When you're climbing a hill and you think, okay, I'm almost at the top of the hill and then suddenly you realize this isn't a hill. This is a mountain. The hard gets even harder. And that's what happens in verses 13 and 14. God reveals to Abram that it's not just a challenge. It's going to be a catastrophe. He says, the land, the land that you're wondering, you're looking for a guarantee, the land is going to remain uncertain for you and your people for another 400 years, he says. In verses 13 and 14, and God just stacks it up. Not only is there this 300, 400 more years without possession of this land that was promised, there's also going to be exile. You'll be off the land. And there's also going to be slavery. Your people are going to be under the power of another nation, Egypt, and it's going to be injustice. It's injustice. He says in verses 13 and 14, Afterward, I'm going to come and judge. And so God just piles it on the challenges to Abram trusting God and believing that he will receive the promise. And so maybe this is some of what you know what this is like. Trust in God, trust in God about your job, about your frustrating, dead-end job, and you're working faithfully in it, and then the promotion is denied again. The raise is turned down. Or, or, or maybe you get a lousy, a lousy custody arrangement, or you get denied your first choice of the school that you're applying for, and you don't get your second choice either. You get the third choice, and you've got ahead of you years, years of barrenness and of just wondering, is this gonna, how is this going to turn out to be blessing God knows about that, and God's not afraid to tell you about that. The Lord tells Abram about these coming hurdles that he will have to face, and what we see is this. God does not play the odds. You can go ahead and look at this disaster situation that God is putting in front of you, and you can put a percentile on it. You can make the odds, and what you need to know is this. God doesn't play the odds. God's not afraid to tackle the difficult, to do the difficult, and so he tells Abram, I'm going to give you some bad news. I'm going to give you some bad news. But I won't give you more bad news than you can bear. That, that's how Jesus is. Jesus says in, in John 16:12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And what that tells us is God won't give you more bad news than you can bear. It might feel unbearable, but he won't give you more bad news than you can bear today and this week. Now, how do you respond, though? How do you respond when God gives you bad bad news and when he gives you even more bad news? How do you respond when God reveals setbacks, when he tells you there are increased challenges coming up? Do you get angry? Do you fall into despair? Do you start to catastrophize and calamitize and start predicting all of these horrible endgame scenarios? God wants you to trust him. God wants you to not just trust him, he wants you to expect God's success. He wants you to take all this bad news, this piling up of the, the odds against you, and he wants you to expect that even with all that, he's going to succeed. When you don't, though, when you don't trust him, when, when you fall into despair, when we fail to believe God's one-sided promise, what happens? Fear and horror, Phyllis. Fear and horror stack up, and that's what you see in verse one. Abram is afraid; he's horrified. And and you see this in verse twelve. The Verse twelve it says, "The sun was going down. A deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell on him." It, it was. It was. It was. Is it's a symbolic scene that starts to play out here. This this scene where Abram is suddenly. It's it's almost like he's in this haze, and it's dark, and he's. He's overwhelmed with terror and horror. And, and here's, here's the scene. Verses 9 and 10, God tells him to take these animals, a cow, a goat, ram, birds, and, and he's to kill them. And, and some of them he, he's to cut the carcass in two. And so in that scene with the dead lumps of flesh, this, this darkness descends on him in verse 12. It's solar darkness, but it's also soul darkness. This horror falls on him on the inside. And, and, and maybe you can just picture this. He's sitting there, and it goes late into the night. He's sitting there, and he's even sleeping there with the dead carcasses of these animals cut in front of him. It's a picture for him. It's a picture of the plight of his people, their future slavery for centuries, their future, future exile, captivity, and the injustice that they're going to have to face. And so this horror and this darkness of his people's tragedy and suffering the division from the inheritance. The promise of the land to him, the promise of the son, it seems impossible. And in this darkness and in this night, God reveals more about his ways to Abram and to us. He says in verse 16, the iniquity of the Amorites, this other people, it's not yet complete. He's telling him more sin has to happen. Sin has to increase first. God is going to let sin bake and then he's going to judge the cooked product. Both for Egypt, that's what he says in verse 14, the people who enslave your people, I will come and judge. And for the Amorites, the Canaanites, verses 19 through 21, he's going to also let their sin come to its fullness, and then he will come and bring judgment there. The question he brings to Abram and the question he brings to you this morning is this, are you facing, not just challenge, but are you facing darkness are you facing a horror in your soul we we sometimes put that into words and say i'm overwhelmed i am overwhelmed in your family in your mental health in your country things are bad but they're going to get worse you've got enemies but now you also have personal poverty in the long night this is what he's saying in the long night the lord is saying I will come. I will come to you. In Abram's darkness and horror, the Lord comes to him. The Lord comes to him. Now if you can stand on that, if you can stand on that, that will supply a peace and a strength that will let you endure one more day, one more night. If you can stand on that, that will that will help reduce, it won't remove, but it will reduce the fear, the degree of horror that you're having to handle. So God makes this, this ultimate one-sided promise to dispel our fears and to address our needs, but we struggle. We struggle to believe it. How can we believe it? Well, this is the third third thing that we're going to look at here. Here's Here's how you can believe it. God here, and God to you, God makes a guarantee of death. It's the most serious, the most solemn, the most obligating guarantee you can make. He makes a guarantee of death. That's what's happening here with this whole ceremony. It's the structure of an ancient covenant ceremony. In an ancient covenant ceremony, the greater party initiates a relationship with the lesser party. The greater initiates a relationship with the lesser. In this example here of this ancient covenant ceremony with Abram, God is the greater, Abram is the lesser, and God's the initiator. The ceremony, those ancient covenant ceremonies, also declare dramatize within the ceremony the consequences if the covenant isn't kept if performance isn't made the ceremony declares the consequences for failure to perform and that's what's going on with these cut animals it's saying this what we've done in killing these animals and dividing them may that be done to me if I don't perform may this be done to me if I do not keep the covenant and, and that's why it's sometimes called cutting a covenant because the animals are cut and may I be cut if I do not perform. This language comes from the word cut, karat. Uh, Jeremiah 34, 18 and 19, it's, 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 a, it's an expanded explanation of what these covenants and the cutting of the covenant meant. Now there's a surprise in this covenant ceremony. This is, this is a typical covenant ceremony, but it's also Weird. There's a surprise in this covenant ceremony. Who is it? Who is it that walks through the cut pieces? It should have been Abram. It should have been Abram. But it's God, not Abram, who walks between the pieces. The torch and the oven, they represent God and his judgment. If my judgment isn't brought, if I don't do what I've promised, may this be done to me. What he's saying here is God is the penalty bearer. It's God himself, one commentator says, who walks between the pieces, and it's suggested here that God is invoking the curse on himself if he fails to fulfill the promise. What's going on here? What's going on here is that God is making a guarantee of death. He's making a guarantee of his death if he does not keep the covenant. And this is a picture of Jesus Christ in the gospel Abraham, and you and I, we are filled with fear and horror because we don't believe that God is enough and we don't believe that God will perform on his promise. And we don't wait on the Lord. We bolt or we take matters into our own hands or we get bitter about it. Here's the, here's the guarantee that the gospel gives you. In the covenant, God walked through the dead pieces and said, Let me be torn in two if I don't keep my covenant to you. On the cross, Jesus was torn in two to prove God's commitment to you. The son, Jesus Christ, the son who had only known a unity, a oneness of love and delight with the father, he experienced the horror of having the father go dark on him for the first time, and it ripped Jesus in two. He said, why, Father, have you forsaken me? Jesus was torn in two, so that you and I who believe could become one with God. That's the promise in John 17, that those who will believe in me, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us. God will keep his commitment. Because Jesus walked through darkness and horror, God will never abandon or forsake you. Now, how do you you get into this kind of relationship, this kind of covenant relationship with God, this oneness, this union with God? How can you know that God commits himself to you, that God is yours, that he's your shield, that he's your reward. How do you get this? Can you you study enough? Make enough academic attainment? Can you donate enough? Donate enough to good causes? Can you volunteer enough? Do enough good for the community? No. It is entirely one-sided. It's one-sided. It's grace. Now, it's curious and significant that in verse 6, Abram, it says, what's his response? He brings nothing to the table. Abram believed on the Lord, and the Lord counted that belief, that faith, for righteousness. It's one-sided. All that Abram did was to believe. The New Testament makes much of this, quotes it twice. Romans 4 quotes it also in Galatians 2, Galatians 3. Galatians 3, for instance, it says, Galatians 3, 6, just as Abraham believed God, And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham. The gospel didn't come in the New Testament. The gospel came in Genesis. God preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Abram believed, and that faith was counted to him as righteousness. It was as if Abram had performed on the covenant. It was as if Abram had kept every commandment in the Bible. Righteousness is moral obedience and acceptance. This this righteousness is a moral acceptance by believing, not by doing. Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus died as a sacrifice, the only sacrifice that He took the penalty? of every commandment that you broke in your place? And do you believe, do you believe that you can only believe that the promise is one-sided, that there's nothing you could do, nothing you could add to it, nothing you have to barter with, that Jesus walked the pieces of sacrifice and Jesus was the pieces of sacrifice? If, if If you don't see this, If you don't see this and if you don't believe this, then you'll become a person who eventually will become demanding of God when God doesn't perform when or what you're asking. You'll become a person who becomes entitled, entitled towards others, entitled towards God, thinking, I don't deserve this. I, I I shouldn't have to wait for this. You'll become impatient with God. I've done my part, God, whether we would say it out loud or it's just something we harbor in our heart. I've done my part, God. Now you do your part when you have this one-sided covenant relationship with God, it enables you to make your waiting peaceful, confident. Because Jesus was slain, and because Jesus rose, and because Jesus will return, you know that the ruin, the horror that you face, it will surely Turn to restoration when he comes. That's the promise given to Abram. Abram, you're going to go to your fathers in peace. You're going to be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your people are going to return here. It will be restored. And because Jesus will return, you know that everything wrong will be set right. Genesis 15, 14, God says, The nation whom they serve, the injustice that's brought on your people, I will judge, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. And so believer, as we close perhaps today, perhaps today you have unwanted singleness. Perhaps you have a lousy legal settlement. Perhaps you are under the lash at work or in life and it looks to you like 400 years of horror. Beloved, the Lord says, do not fear. The Lord says, I am your shield. I am your great reward. Do not fear. Let's pray. Lord, we do believe you've made a guarantee, a more solemn guarantee. You couldn't make more than this, a guarantee of your own death. And then Jesus demonstrated us to us that we can trust your promise. And so, Lord, today we come to you some coming with fear and horror in front of them, we pray, Lord, that they would believe that your commitment and that you would be enough. And for those who have not yet known Christ as their covenant keeper, we pray, Lord, that they would come to you and, and, and they would come to know your commitment and your love to those who, who just receive your grace. We ask it for us, We ask it for our children. We ask that you would be glorified in all of this, in Jesus' name, amen.